John 19. We're going to be reading verses 1 to 16, but we're going to break it up a little bit, and we're going to read each section and then speak about each section as we go. Before I begin reading God's Word this morning, I want to tell you about um, a visitor we had at class this last weekend, Friday and Saturday last week. We had our class this meeting for the spring, um, which is always a, a, a joyful gathering, I find. I enjoy our class meetings. At this particular one, we had a visitor, as we often do, to give a report and uh, not only a report, but a little bit of an exhortation to us as leaders in the classes. Uh, it was Reverend Al Postman. He's a great guy. I have huge respect for Al. He, uh, I've, I've met him and even gotten to know him a little bit over the years. But now, currently, he is serving as the transitional executive director of the CRC Canada. Um, and uh, so he... He visited, he gave us a talk, uh, but towards the end of his talk, he said what I thought were some very powerful and profound things about us and God and our denomination. And so I want to share with you his closing sentence, the last thing he said, the last sentence he said, and then we'll, we'll come back to the rest of his talk later on in the sermon. But here's how he closed his time. He said, and, I, and, and we all received the transcript, so I know this is exactly what he said. He said, it would be fair to expect that a community like the CRC, whose theology embraces God's sovereignty so deeply, it would be fair to expect that a community like that would be filled with people who are incredibly gracious, understanding, patient, humble, and peaceful. Now what he was saying there is that our theology, our theology which teaches and embraces and celebrates the fact that God is both good and sovereign all the time, believing that should equip us to be gracious and understanding and patient and humble and peaceful in all circumstances. And to the extent that we lack those things, that means that we're not really believing, not actually functionally believing that God is good and that God is sovereignly in control of all circumstances because if we really believed that, then we would experience the peace and humility and steadfastness that comes along with believing that. Now I share that with you because in our passage today, Jesus perfectly embodies these principles that Al was getting at. On the surface, it looks like, when you just look at Jesus' circumstances, it looks like they couldn't possibly be worse. He's been arrested. He's been assaulted. He's been wrongfully accused by false witnesses. And he is facing possible, a possible death sentence. And it won't just be a death sentence, but it will be the, the, the most torturous death that you can imagine. And yet... He responds to those terrifying and troubling circumstances with grace, understanding, patience, humility, and peace. And I want to find out how he did that so that we too can become more like that. So let's pray together and then we'll look at the passage. 
Holy Father, thank you for this opportunity that we, your people, have to be gathered in your house, seated at your table, seated under the authority of your word, and empowered and dwelt by your Holy Spirit. We thank you for that. It's a blessing. We receive that blessing with thankful hearts, and I pray that you'd help us to feed well and be nourished by your holy word. Help us to understand it. Help us to believe it. Help us to apply it to our lives. In Christ's name, amen. All right, well, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the different people who are caught up in this drama as it unfolds. We're going to look at the man who holds the power from a worldly perspective, the man who is in possession of all the power, the political power. Then we're going to look at, from a worldly perspective, the men who hold all the power, the religious power. From a, from a religious perspective, the men who hold all the power. And then we're going to take a look at the man in the center of this drama who actually holds the power. Only one of these people is actually free. And you can see his freedom in the way that he responds to his circumstances. And we're going to see that the rest of the people are actually slaves, slaves to one thing or another, but not truly free. So let's look together at verses 1 to 4. We'll just read John 19 and verses 1 to 4. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him in the face. And once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. All right, so there's the man with the worldly power. That's Pilate. Pilate seems to want to do the right thing. You feel it when you read it, right? He knows what's right, and he wants to do it. He recognizes from the very start that Jesus is an innocent man who has been framed. Pilate sees that right away, and he seems to want to release him. Over and over again, we hear Pilate saying, I find no guilt in him. I get it that you brought him here. I get it that you want him punished, but I'm not seeing it. I find no guilt in this man. He, Pilate understands that and he wants to release the innocent man. But even more than Pilate's desire to do what's right and to release the innocent man, even greater than his desire for justice is Pilate's selfish ambition and his desire to hang on to power. That's a greater desire in the heart of Pilate. And he is willing to compromise his own convictions in order to cling to his earthly power. And because of that, Pilate is at the mercy of the crowd, not the other way around. He knows that if there is a riot with this crowd during this holiday, that could very well cost him his job. That could very well cost him all of this power that he has worked so hard to attain. He'll lose his grip on it. So he needs to avoid a riot. And when your life is devoted to gaining the approval of others, you are not a free person. You are a slave to the opinions of others. That's Pilate, 
and he has always been like that. Pilate, his backstory that we can find in other histories written outside of the Bible, we learn that Pilate was born in, 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 a, in just a small town, Nowheresville, in the Roman Empire. He was born to a no-name family that was not prominent. And he spent his whole life trying to climb the ladder of social power and wealth. That's what has driven Pilate his whole life. He started, he saw a path to power through being in the army, so he volunteered. He became a common soldier. He distinguished himself on the field of battle, and there began his, began his upward mobility. He then journeyed to Rome, to the heart of things, to the heart of power, and he strategically worked it so that he could marry into a powerful family. In fact, he married into the most powerful family. He married a woman named Claudia Procula, who was the granddaughter of Emperor Augustus. And then Pilate proceeded to aggressively pursue a career in politics and to pursue political advancement. It's what he lived for. Everything that Pilate did in his life was calculated to increase his power, to promote his advancement. And as a result, he was good at it, and he became a very powerful man. But it's a fragile power that depends on the approval of others. And when you are, you are enslaved to the opinions of others, you are not a free person. And that is Pilate. All right, now we shift our attention. That was the man with the political power, with the earthly power, from an earthly perspective. Now we shift our attention to the men with the religious power. Look at verses 5 to 7. It says, When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to, the men, said to them, Here is the man. And as soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, these are the religious guys with the religious power, the chief priests, the officials, they saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. In verse 7, the Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law. And according to that law, he must die. Because he claimed to be the son of God. All right, well, we're told that these religious guys, these professional holy guys, they're the ones that are bringing the formal charges against Jesus. They bring him to the governor's headquarters, but they refuse, remember this from last time, they refuse to go inside because they have laws concerning that type of thing. And if they go inside the governor's headquarters, if they go inside Pilate's place, if they go inside a Gentile's house, they're going to be defiled according to their law, and because of that, they won't be able to eat the Passover. The law, that's the most important thing for them. That's what drives their decisions. The law, not people, not love, not grace, not mercy, but the law. These men live for the law. They're all about the law. Just like how Pilate lived for the opinions of others, Pilate lived for selfish uh, ambition, for his own advancement. And that's what made him a slave. These men live for the law. And that's what makes them slaves. Notice that when Pilate tries to wiggle out of this uncomfortable situation, he says, you take him, you crucify him, because I find no guilt in him. I'm not, I'm not doing your dirty work for you. You do it. 
And they immediately respond with these words, but we have a law. And according to that law, this guy needs to die. For them, it's all about the law. They live for the law. And what I keep saying is that to live for the law is to live in slavery. Well, wait a minute, you say. The law is from God. Jesus seemed to love the law. He lived according to the law. He went out of his way to say publicly and saw that it was recorded that he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. So what's the problem with the law? Well, there's no problem with the law. The problem is in the way that they're interacting with the law. Because here's the thing. The law is a great guide for living, but the law is a horrible means of salvation. It's a great guide for living. It's a horrible means of salvation. They were using the right tool, a good tool, but for the wrong purpose. Right? Do you know people who do that? I, when I was in junior high, I had this this legendary shop teacher. This guy was awesome. His name was uh, Mr. Zayner. We called him Zip, not to his face, but behind his back. We called him Zip Zayner. And uh, one of the many, he was a great guy, and everybody loved him, but one of the things he was notorious for was blowing up at students. This was just like his thing, his pet peeve. He would blow up at students if they used a screwdriver like a chisel, or if they used a chisel as if it was a screwdriver. That was his thing. Most students in his class did not know and did not care whether the tool they were holding was a chisel or a screwdriver. They look kind of the same. They can kind of function in the same way. Most students, myself included, would just use those tools interchangeably. Whatever you happen to have in your hand, you use it. God helped the student who was caught by Mr. Zayner unscrewing a screw with a chisel. Trust me, and I'm saying that from personal experience. <laughs> now, the problem, the problem is not that chisels are bad. Chisels are good, but chisels are only good when you use them for their intended purpose, which is apparently chiseling, <laughs> not screwing or unscrewing. Well, that's how it is with the law. Okay, the law is good. The law is good. The Bible tells us that God's law is good and perfect and that it will endure forever. It's that good. But it's a tool that doesn't work properly if you don't use it for its intended purpose. The law reveals to us God's will for us. The law lays out for us a path of blessing for us to walk. It enables us to draw near to God through our obedience to the law, and it positions us to be a blessing on others as we walk according to God's law. But it is not designed, was never designed, to be a ladder by which we climb our way up to God and earn our salvation one rung at a time through our obedience. That's law abuse. That's using the right tool for the wrong application. That's using a chisel to unscrew a screw. We're supposed to live according to the law, but we're not supposed to live for the law. There's a big difference between the two. Living according to the law means we receive the law as a map. It guides our path. It leads us on the path of faithful obedience. It enables us 
to draw near to God, and to be a blessing on others. But living for the law means that we've turned the law into an end in itself instead of a means to something else. Living for the law means putting our faith not in God, but in our own ability to keep the law. When you live for the law, your religion basically becomes a celebration of yourself, a celebration of your own ability to do the right thing. Living for the law means that when you see a fellow human being beaten to a pulp and the magistrate saying, I find no guilt in this man, that you're going to have to immediately respond and say, but we have a law. We have a law. And according to that law, this man needs to die. Never mind the fact that this is a fellow human being and created in the image of God and beaten to a pulp and hurting. We have a law. That's exactly what these men do. No mercy, no compassion, no love, just we have a law. And with those words, they reveal that they are not free men, but they are slaves to the law. And now we come to the one free man in the passage. Look at verse starting in verse 8 to 11. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. Now, from a worldly perspective, Jesus is the one person in this passage who has no power. It appears as if he's the victim of these evil circumstances, and you would expect someone in that situation to be panicked and and perhaps maybe even trying to bargain his way out of this mess. But there's no hint of that at all here. He appears calm and at peace. In some ways, this moment in Jesus' life reminds me of another time when he was in a literal storm at sea and the waters were raging all around him, but he was so at peace with the world and with himself that while the storm raged, remember, he was asleep in the back, not worried about it at all. Well, now he finds himself in a metaphorical storm that's raging all around him, a, a, a political, theological storm, and his very life is at stake, and yet Jesus is once again the picture of peace and calm. Why is that? Well, we get the answer in verse 11. You would have no authority over me at all, unless it had been given to you from above. There's the key. Jesus really believes that. He really honestly believes that. He knows that God is in control and that therefore everything is going according to plan. He knows that despite how everything looks, God is the one who holds the power and nothing is ever out of his control. And because he knows that, he is a slave to nobody, but he is truly free. Now, we might argue that it's easier for him to know that because he is, in fact, a member of the Godhead, and he therefore has insider firsthand information about how God operates. All right, that's surely true. But one of the reasons he came 
is so that he could reveal the character of God to us. So that we too could rest in God's sovereignty in all circumstances. That is a freedom that the world knows nothing about. Pilate can't make sense of it. Pilate is genuinely confused. He says, do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? It's up to me. Don't you get it? I'm the one in charge here. Pilate thinks that power resides with himself and with the Roman government. The chief priests can't make sense of it. They think power resides with them and with their ability to interpret and enforce the law. And Jesus, Jesus basically says, no, 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 no. In this circumstance, as in every other circumstance, God is sovereign and God is in control, not you. Because he believes that he is at peace even in the worst of times. And this passage is inviting you and I to also believe that and to experience the perfect peace that comes from resting in God's sovereignty. Now, if you're the type who's inclined to peek forward and see how this turns out, then you will discover that the worst possible scenario does indeed unfold. He was wrongfully accused. He was found guilty. Even though the judge knew he was innocent, he was found guilty, and he was subsequently tortured and crucified. It, it doesn't really get worse than that. And yet... God is sovereign even over worst-case scenarios. And God is able to shape those circumstances according to his perfect will. And God is able to make good come out of them. That was true in this case, and it's true in our lives as well. In fact, the Bible promises in Romans 8 that all things work together for good for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. And it's that knowledge that sets us free and gives us peace in all circumstances. That's, that's not a promise that bad things won't happen. I mean, that's practically a guarantee that bad things will happen. But it's a promise that God is in control and God is shaping this story according to his good plans and purpose. And as I keep saying, believing that is the source of true peace and freedom. And so now we come to the final section, verses 12 to 16. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. And finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. Behold your king, or here is your king is probably the truest, the most profound thing that Pilate ever said in his entire life. He never said a more true thing than, Behold your king. That's right. That's your king. And yet, Pilate, because of his love for power, 
needed to please the crowd. That was not an option for him. If he wanted to keep his power, he needed to please the crowd. And so he was forced to compromise his convictions and to sentence an innocent man to death. I find no guilt in him. That's what Pilate said. I find no guilt in him. And yet he sentenced him to death. The chief priests, because of their self-righteous love of their own law-keeping, so proud of themselves for keeping the law all the time, were forced to have to put Jesus to death. Why? Because Jesus came providing a gracious alternative to earning God's favor through keeping the law. And the law guys couldn't have that. What do you mean, an alternative? A gracious alternative? Saved by grace through faith? What? No. No, no, no. We're law guys. We're law keepers. We're law enforcers. We're law guys. And therefore, the grace guy, the grace guy has to go. And yet it's Jesus who is at peace and in control. We read that in, in, in what the passage I just read in the NIV, it says it was noon. In some versions it says it was the sixth hour. That means the same thing. It was the sixth hour on Passover Eve. It was noon on Passover Eve when Pilate said to the crowd, Behold your king. We're told that, the timeline. It's noon, right? The clock is striking 12, metaphorically. And there's Jesus, and there's Pilate, and there's the crowd. And it's noon, and Pilate says, Behold your king. Is that significant? That's the very hour when the priests begin to slaughter the Passover lambs in the temple. Noon on Passover Eve. The priests had just sharpened their blades and they were just starting to cut the lambs and kill them. And Pilate is shouting to the crowd, Behold your king. The Lamb of God is still in control. He might be in shackles. He might be beaten. He might be wearing a crown of thorns instead of a real crown. But he is still in control. And this narrative, this drama, this story is proceeding exactly according to his plan and no one else's. He's in charge even then. Even down to the timing of when Pilate says what he says, Jesus is in control of that. Nobody else. And that is true in this situation that we're reading about. It is also true in my life and in your life. It is true in our church and it is true in our denomination and it is true in our world. And that brings us in conclusion to Reverend Al Postma's remarks at classes. Al was speaking before classes and he was addressing the fact that our denomination and our churches have gone through some challenging times over the past years. No surprise there. No mystery there. We all know that. And this is what Al said. I'll just quote directly from his, from his final words. He said this. You would expect that staunchly reformed folks would be some of the most gracious and relaxed people around. After all, we believe... That without the active prompting and work of the Holy Spirit, there really is nothing that we or anyone else can do to build Christ's church. And there's also nothing that we or anyone else can do to destroy Christ's church. God works through us. Sometimes God works in spite of us. But it is God who is doing the work. 
And we are just along for the ride. Our responsibility from the passenger seat, our responsibility is towards sanctification, towards helping people live lives that give evidence to the holy work that God is doing in them. And as leaders in the church, it is our job to do our best to support communities that are shaped by the ongoing dying and rising that characterizes this growth. To do so requires the capacity, among other things, for patience and mutual submission. Two things that, at least among the loudest voices, seem to have declined significantly in our community. This is a task before us at this moment as a denomination. How do we help our communities be shaped by holiness while also expecting them to be places where holiness is not yet achieved? What room do we give to one another for the space needed to wade through the nuances of specific situations? And what room do we give to others for speaking words of challenge into our own lives, leadership, and communities? How do we show our capacity to both speak well to one another and to listen well to one another? And how do we manage all this as people shaped by the deep inner peace and freedom that comes from knowing that God is the author and finisher of our faith. We will make mistakes and nobody will lose their salvation over it. We will at times succeed and no one will gain their salvation from it. It's an incredibly important responsibility we carry and so we do the best we can while recognizing that it's all ultimately in God's hands. It would be fair to expect that a community whose theology embraces God's sovereignty so deeply would be filled with people who are incredibly gracious, understanding, patient, humble, and peaceful. There's a lot of wisdom there. Al makes no effort to cover up or deny the fact that we have faced challenges and that we will continue to face challenges. That is a reality. And we have a role to play. We have a responsibility to shoulder. We have a responsibility as representatives of Christ and as members of his holy family. And yet, the place of our emphasis and the source of our peace is not us. Is not our ability to do and to say the right thing at the right time in all circumstances. We focus on the fact that despite our limitations, despite our failures, God is good and he is powerful and his will will be done. And once we really believe that, like deep down believe that in all circumstances believe that, then we too will be set free and we will experience the peace that we see exemplified in Jesus at this trial. So I want you right now to think of the trials that you're facing in your life. Right now, think specifically of the trials that you are facing in your life right now. Everyone in this room has some. What are the things that you're discouraged about right now? What are the things that you're anxious about right now? What keeps you up at night right now? What are you brokenhearted about? What are you confused about? There's nothing wrong with feeling those feelings. 
But as you feel those feelings, are you believing that God is with you, that God is for you, that God is in control, and that God is able to work all things together for good for those who love the Lord and who are called according to his purpose? Because if we really do believe, if we believe that, then we will be, like Al said, incredibly gracious and patient and humble and peaceful. And I pray that those would be words that people would use to describe the people of this church. Let's pray together. Holy Father, this is one of those easy-to-say, hard-to-do type passages and, and sermons. We do believe that you're sovereign and that you're good and that you're in control and that you have a plan and that things are proceeding according to your plan. We believe those things. And when we look back in time, we see it. We see how what felt bad in the moment, what felt uncomfortable or painful in the moment, was actually used by you to bring about your purposes. We see that in the past. It's harder to see it looking forward because we don't know the future. We don't know how you're going to work all things together for your purposes and for your glory. But we do believe that you will and that you are. And I pray that in those moments when we're tempted to doubt that, when we're tempted to give in to discouragement or despair or doubt, I pray that in those moments you would remind us. And Lord Jesus, I thank you for your perfect and faithful witness to those things that you didn't waver, that you didn't doubt, that you didn't despair, despite the fact that you were in the hardest of circumstances, but you believed. You believed that all of this, even the pain and sadness and suffering and sorrow, all of it is able to be used by you for your purposes in order to accomplish your will. And I pray that we would find comfort in that and that believing that would make us incredibly gracious and faithful and humble and kind-hearted and compassionate and peaceful people. In Christ's name, amen.